This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. This is Coach Jen from Ocala, Florida. And I am Tara Tibbetts coming to you from Fort Worth, Texas. And you are listening to our monthly fox hunting episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for November 18th, 2021, episode 2812. Good morning, Horse World. This is our favorite Thursday episode, the third Thursday of every month. We you talk might be a little biased. About, I'm completely biased. <laughs> talk to you about fox hunting. Yay, fox hunting. And this show, the November, the November 2021 episode, we are well and truly into high season or formal season. Does anybody call it high season anymore? No, I'm sure they don't. No, it's mostly formal and yeah. autumn. Or informal. Yeah. Inform yeah. So we're well and truly in there. And how about you? Because we always we always have to catch up on all your latest adventures. Have you gone to any opening meets? What have you been up to since we last chatted? I so if you remember last year, Simon and I traveled the world. You did fox hunting. <laughs> I think we went to we did th- maybe three opening hunts last year. Anyways, this year we are staying local. There's a new hunt developing in the Texas area that we are participating in. And we, you know, they're, they're working towards all the officialness, but just, you know, growing and learning and all those things. And so they had a, an opening meet, but it was a more informal opening meet. And so we've been going out pretty much every Saturday and having a blast. How fun is that? You get to be in, in the infancy phase. Yes, yes, and the had probably the funniest experience I've ever had hunting in my entire life a couple weeks ago. Oh, do tell. I was whipping, so kind of riding out, making sure the hounds weren't getting near the roads, et cetera, et cetera, and out from the trees comes a coyote. Shortly behind it comes a hound, and the hounds are fairly light-colored, so they're pretty easy to see against the the fall foliage and the the dry, dead grass. And this coyote, it gets closer and closer, and I'm galloping towards it, and I'm like, Jen, the coyote had neck rolls. (laughs) This was the fattest coyote I think that ever has lived like it had neck rolls. It had fat on its rump. It was, and it was big. It was tall. And it was obviously it was running for its life. Cause there's a hound behind it, but the, the story ends happily. Nothing gets hurt. It gets away. All those things. Coyotes are much faster than hounds. Generally smarter as well. And he, he didn't have to try too terribly hard, but you could tell he was really working. And I, I it's like he found a bag of dog food and lived in it. Well, I'm I'm wondering if he didn't discover one of those homes that has the 
big bag of cat or dog food opened and lets their pet self feed, you know, and they keep it in the barn in the corner. (laughs) But what I don't get is this territory is it's in the middle of nowhere. The actual property that we're hunting on is 6,000 acres. There's not like a development of houses nearby. Really? (laughs) Wow. Well, maybe, maybe he just hangs out at the right spot on the interstate where all the roadkill is. I guess it, 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 I've never, and I've seen usually from a distance, I've seen a lot of coyotes, but it, it, I I can't even put into words. I I mean, and and I'm riding, I was riding with another woman and I, in my back of my mind, I'm like, I really hope she's getting her phone out and taking pictures or videos (laughs) of this because it's epic. I just, I, and I, I posted something in a, in the Facebook group and I was like, you know, that's the fattest hound I've ever seen in, or coyote I've ever seen in. Somebody commented and they're like, well, maybe it was pregnant. And I'm like, it was not that it was not it was that kind of fat spelled no. neck fat, <laughs> different kind of fat. Wow. See, the only time I've ever gotten close enough to a coyote to notice whether or not it was fat, um, I would have I, I would have both times I would definitely have said that guy's a little scrawny. Yep. You know, they're big muscular animals, but. Yes. Obviously wild animals. They're not, they were not rotund in any way, shape or form. That's interesting. Huh? Well, and then I'm like wondering, does it have like a thyroid problem <laughs> or <laughs> cushing's going on there? <laughs> yes. And I was hoping that the next weekend we went out that we would see it and we didn't see it again. I'm sure we go back to that property fairly regularly. So I'm sure we'll see it again at some point, but you could tell it was just like, what is happening? Like, we should be laying down eating something. Why is this thing chasing me? <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, not Bart. Who's, who's dad Simpson? The Simpsons. Oh, you said that. Now I can, I can see him and I can't think of his name, but yeah. yeah oh, like, yeah. It's like the Simpsons. You should have a, a beer and a pizza. Oh, that's funny. Yes. So yes. when a hound is after a quarry like that. And he doesn't have all of his foxhound friends to help him because honestly, people, foxhounds need to have 30 of them to catch one fox because they're just not the brightest bulbs. Correct. And they're just not as athletic as a coyote. No, no, they're not. So when that happens is how shouldn't the other foxhounds be going, oh, they've got something. So somebody forgot to bark. Well, we've had an interesting experience. So because it's a new hunt, it's a fairly small pack of hounds. So there's that. But there's so much quarry on this particular property that I think they're getting a little overwhelmed. Because they're, yes, because they can't tell if, if Freddie gets on a scent and says, over this way, and then Marsha on the other side of the spinny three trees away gets a scent. Doesn't, Fred and Marsha don't realize that they're on two different scents on two different quarry. Yes. Got it. Yes. Now it makes sense. Well, gosh, that's yes. a good problem to have. It is. And in that particular day, I think we saw three different coyotes. Wow. I saw one or two on my side and they saw another one on the other side and, and the hounds are getting good runs and they're working really hard and they're, they're very, they listen to the huntsman and they're very mindful and, it's been interesting because it's they're a little bit older hounds, and so they've they've got a little more experience under their belts. But as always, like you know, they're learning to work together in a different, completely mm-hmm. different territory. Mm-hmm. So it's really fascinating to watch and and experience that change in development in the hounds. 
Yes, exactly. So this, so for your practice opening meat before you become officially fancy. Um, yes. Did you is, do you invite folks in for that, or is there sort of a loose group that that go and do that? How's that work out when you're a, when you're a fledgling fox hunt? We are keeping it very small and just it was invitation only. Mm-hmm. Um, really related to people actually hunting and landowners is kind of what we're focused on a lot. I'm in Texas, and ninety nine percent of the time when you tell someone that you fox hunt, they just look at you like you're crazy, <laughs> and so. There's a lot of opportunity to develop relationships with landowners and and the the property with the world's fattest coyote is a great example of that. They're, you know, it's cattle people that are used to people who hunt hounds that run raccoons and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but have not really been around, you know, the, the sport of fox hunting and they're fascinated by it. They're this particular landowner is just he, he, very delightful every every Saturday now, he, he tells us he looks forward to his champagne lunches. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so it, it's just, you know, as with fox hunting, the sport of fox hunting, which in the United States is really mostly coyote, um, it's all about developing relationships and educating people. And, you know, the landowners are really where the sport is. That's that's the future of, of fox hunting is having those relationships. So Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really neat that, in this day and age when so many equestrian sports are under threat and so much open country that was once available to ride on is no longer, it's really exciting for me to hear about a new group getting started and really putting a lot of thought into it and doing it thoughtfully and carefully so that 20 years from now, that new hunt can be thriving and continuing to keep that open country available for people to ride in and happily so. Well, and, and and exactly. I agree wholeheartedly. And Texas is such a huge territory and there is so much open land here, but building, building those relationships and reaching out to the landowners and, and cultivating that opportunity is very, it's, it's painstaking and it's time consuming and it's, you don't just show up one day and say, Hey, can we hunt here? And, you know, it's not that easy. No, it's not that simple. And and then once you develop that relationship, that relationship has to be fostered continuously. It's not a case of, yep. okay, we know each other now. Next. It doesn't work that way. No. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. Well, that's pretty exactly. cool. So onward. We talked about onward opening day for fledgling fox hunt, overweight coyotes. And now, <laughs> <laughs> now it is time for us to hear about what is going on in our term of the month department, because there's always a term of the month because fox hunting is rife with unusual and odd phrases. It is. And and our goal with that is to, to educate people so that when people try fox hunting and they go out in the field, they can, you know, go back to the podcast, listen to some episodes and, and feel knowledgeable when they go out in the field. And so today our term of the month is cast or casting, which is not related to TV or movies. It is a command to the hounds to spread out in order to find the scent. So it's one of the most impressive things for me to see is to go out with a hunt and they'll, they'll get the hounds out of the pen or wherever they are, get them off the trailer and they'll, you know, give them a command to pack up. And so the hounds will travel as a pack for a distance 
Um, one of the most memorable times I've seen this was with Angela Murray, the huntsman of Red Rock Hounds. She packed up her hounds and we, we, we hacked out for about two miles and went and she stopped her horse and gave her whips directions and she cast her hounds out to go hunting. So she gave them a command, which is usually um, a blow of the horn command to tell the hounds, okay, it's time for you to go hunt. And off they go. So it's a very specific little tootie tune that they play that tells the hounds, off you go. Yep. Some hunts, it's a, the huntsmen do a verbal cue. Some oh, of really? them use a horn cue. Yeah, it's, it's one thing I've learned about hunting hounds is there's, there's kind of a gen, general, the way things, do, the way people do it, but each huntsman kind of has their own way. It's, it's way more art than science, isn't it? Yes. And the territory where you're hunting makes a huge difference. So Angela hunts in Reno, Nevada area where you're talking thousands of acres. So a human voice is not going to carry very far. Mm-mm. A horn is pretty essential there. So, yeah. And if if you ever have the opportunity to go to a hound show or a country fair where they're having the horn blowing competitions, I encourage you to do encourage you to do so because it is just magical. Yes, wholeheartedly agree. Yes. So when you aside off topic, the huntsman. T- casts the hounds when a pack welcomes in a new hound you have a name for that what's that called when you get a new hound in and to enter well draft when you get one from another hunt you draft them draft a hound in football took it from us (laughs) i like it Um, when that happens a new hound comes in the signal or command to cast the hounds is liable to be different than what that hound was previously used to. So is that a case of he's going to come out and pretty much go, oh, well, I'm just going to do what everybody else is doing, even though I don't know what he just said? A good hound is going to probably do what the pack does. Okay. That's that's a big, a characteristic that huntsmen want in their hounds is, you know, they want enough independent thought that they'll get on a scent and, and, you know, Mm -hmm they'll communicate with the other hounds to, you know, get on a scent and stay on a scent, but also you don't want a hound that runs completely independent Mm -hmm. because those hounds can be a problem if they don't, you know, when, when a pack splits, that's, that's, that's bad. That's bad. Especially if it's, yeah, that could be really bad (laughs) (laughs) when you get four of them off that direction and 16, the other direction. Exactly. That could be very bad indeed. And, and I, I, I do not profess to be a hound expert. I'm like elementary school level, but I've really been learning and reading a lot and observing. And um, that was one of the fun things about traveling around so much last year is we went to a lot of hunts where you really had the opportunity to watch the hounds work mm-hmm. and talk to the huntsmen and learn kind of, you know, what they're looking for, what they look for in a hound. And the United States is such a vastly different territory from coast to coast. Yes. Yes. You're, you're not going to find a lot of, there, there's not going to be uniformity in how they hunt, how they command, what they breed for, what their traits are going to be. And they can't be, it's just like the horses we ride. It's the same way, right? Absolutely. Yes. You know, a horse that might be fantastic in the desert Southwest might not do so well in 
the Mid-Atlantic or one that is doing really well in really super trappy, hot country in the south, east, if you take them up north into open country, they're liable not to do so well. Yeah. Right. And there's, uh, we should get one of the hunts on. There's a couple hunts in the southwestern United States that have introduced sighthound breeding into their packs because there is, it's so dry that the scent hounds have a really difficult time. Mm -hmm. And so they're kind of working towards getting a scent hound, sight hound partnership to help each other. But that's very much like in development. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see how that pans out over the next couple of generations of hounds. And I've talked to folks who say that when you cross a scent hound and a sight hound, usually one of the two traits is dominant in the puppy. Mm Mm-hmm. You so don't get a little of it. each. You get more of one versus right. the other. Interesting. Right. And I have a deer hound, fox hound cross myself. And I know at least one of her litter mates, they tra- they were working on training and that, that hound was more of a scent hound and they were hoping it would be more of a sight hound, I think, or, mm-hmm. or it, it might have been the opposite, but I just thought it was interesting. That was something that I've only recently learned. <clears throat> Greyhounds. Um a lot of greyhounds are really good scent dogs. Who Interesting. Knew? Who knew? Yes. And we always used to laugh because our greyhound that we used to have that passed away about two years ago, Glory, was always sniffing out things. And we used to just laugh about the fact that our sight hound would sniff things out. But it, I've met a lot of people who have retired racers who are excellent scent dogs. Yeah. That's interesting because I have, as you know, you have every dog breed they make. <laughs> well, and but and I have a significant number of sight hounds. I have a whippet, I have a Borzoi deerhound, and I have the deerhound foxhound. And we've been having issues lately with our Borzoi deerhound because he likes to jump the fence and go to the neighbors. He's thirty-four inches at his shoulder. He's a big dog, and we have learned that if we take him outside when it's dark, he's less likely to jump the fence. Hmm. <laughs> there we go. He also, has he also has killed two skunks in the last ten days. Oh, so there's that. Come on, dude. No. Yes. Yeah. Gosh. He always regrets his life choices after that because I'm sure as a scent hound that's pretty, or as well, I guess as a sight hound it's maybe less miserable, but it's miserable for the rest of us. Uh, we had a farm dog back in the day that every year she would get skunked. Every year. But that dog, the the stinkier and the more dead and rotten it was, the better she liked it. That was just her. Yeah. Well, he I, he his interaction with the skunk is quick. He kills it, and then he's done. And then he's really upset that he's got this horrible skunk spray up his nose. But he can't help himself. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Well, the skunk just stands there and waits to get caught, right? Because that's what skunks do. They, if they can't run away, they turn tail he says oh look you're gonna stop so i can kill you <laughs> yeah I, I, I it always happens in the dark so i never see what's happening i just reap the rewards of the after effect and yeah my public service announcement for the fox hunting podcast for everyone out there don't give me your hydrogen peroxide recipes don't give me your tomato whatever scope scope is scope really you, you douse them in scope you let it sit and then you rinse them off. Now, does it have to be the red scope or the blue scope? I was introduced to this tip from Sandy Dixon, the master of foxhounds and the huntsman for Brazos Valley. 
And she always said to just get the plain name brand scope. So I just get the green one. I get the green one. Okay. Not the, the blue one or the whatever. And it's unbelievable. Really? And I have tested it extensively. Yes. you yeah. Three and a half weeks. Wow. I did not know that. I'm going to file that one away. Gosh. And scope's three, four bucks a bottle. Hello. And, and one, yeah, one bottle of scope will do my 34-inch beer hound. Wow. So. There you go. That's way better because the tomato thing, I we used the. Messy. It's gross. Yeah. We used the yes. tomato juice method and it was messy and gross. Yeah. Yeah, and this I just you can do it in your wash rack. You could we have we do it in our dog room that's got a drain in it, and then the room smells lovely. <laughs> Minty fresh. <laughs> and and the dog won't have any scurf or rain rot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <gasps> oh my gosh. Well, sp- speaking of um handy dandy tips, MFHA, this show wouldn't yes. wouldn't get to happen without MFHA and Fox hunting wouldn't get to happen without MFHA. What's going on over there at the Masters of Foxhounds Association? So the MFHA is is they're cautiously getting more active and, and things are happening again with, you know, as as the pandemic is hopefully well fingers crossed coming to waning. a close. But let's go with let's say go with waning. waning. Love that. So they're very actively having the performance, the hound performance trials. So there's another hound performance trial coming up December 3rd and 4th at Long Run Woodford Hounds in Kentucky. Um, it's fantastic to go ride along and hunt with a hunt that's doing a performance trial, but it's also a fantastic thing to go and watch. And if you go to a performance trial weekend, usually on the evenings after the hunt, the judges will come together and they'll have some type of a dinner, happy hour or something, and they'll talk about the hounds and the hunting and what they did. And it's a great opportunity to learn a lot about hunting. So definitely recommend. There's a whole calendar for the performance trials. If you go to MFHA.com, you can see what what performance trials are coming up. I know the I the newsletter came out today and the the big annual meeting they always do in New York is canceled. Um, in January. So that's a bummer, but hopefully it's back and better than ever in 2023. And if you, you know, looking for some formal fun events, then my recommendation would be to go to MFHA.com. And if you click on the hounds and hunting and go to the hunt index or the hunt map, you can find a hunt that's near you and inquire about their activities and what's going on and get yourself involved. There we go. And now it's time for us to get a hold of our first guest, Marsha. Excellent. I am delighted today to be talking to Marsha Brody. And Marsha is the, I don't know if you have an official title, Marsha, but you she organizes an annual Cleveland Bay fox hunt that happens. There's a couple of different places that it happens. And so Marsha, if you'd start off, I know you've got a long history in fox hunting. So if you'd give us kind of the cliff notes version of how you got started fox hunting and where you are, and then tell us about the Cleveland Bay hunt. Great. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here with you talking about my favorite horses, the Cleveland Bays. Um, I've started with some other a loose-knit organization probably around 2006 to promote this endangered breed. There are probably 850 purebreds in the world and approximately 
200 or 250 in the United States at this time. Uh, a lot of people who use them for sport horses are riding partbreds as well as purebreds, and those partbreds might be crossed with a number of other horses. I've fox hunted for a long time in Maryland. Um, I hunted with Potomac. I hunted with Goshen. I hunted with the Newmarket Middletown Valley. And these days, I hunt with the Loudon Hunt in Northern Virginia and also with the Last Chance Hounds, which is a farmer's pack in Frederick County, Maryland. Uh, so, like all, like most of the storied hunts in the United States, that's what a wonderful opportunity. It's been it's been fantastic, and it's been really fun to promote the Cleveland Bay as a great all around horse for people, whether they're sort of starting out and need a nice steady mount, or some of the fancier fox hunters that have done exceptionally well and really show us the breed. Have you always hunted Cleveland Bays? Like, has this breed been a part of your life for a long time, or is this a breed you came upon um, after you were a more seasoned horsewoman? Well, I no, I came up, I came across the breed when I was working for a veterinarian in Western Pennsylvania, and a client had some very fancy ones that she had brought over from England that had competed at international level in eventing. And I did some research. I loved the history of the breed. I kind of put it on the back burner to see if I would ever be able to come across one or afford one. And I think I probably wasn't really hunting at the time, but I did have the opportunity. I acquired a thoroughbred mare. I decided I was going to breed her to a Cleveland Bay and I ended up with a half Cleveland Bay stallion, and that's sort of how it all started. And then now, probably I don't know, thirty-five years later, I still uh, still have some Cleveland Bays and, and a breeding program, and work with other breeders in the local area and the region to promote the breed and produce some really nice horses. Because. I think most of us and our listeners are familiar with Cleveland Bays, but I know I don't know what were they originally bred for. And yeah, you know, there's a lot of breeds out there that were started kind of foundationally for something else and they've turned, it's changed. Like Morgans were a using horse and now they're more of a show horse. So what was the origination mm-hmm. of Cleveland Bays and what are they used more for now? So these horses were one of the oldest breeds in England down principally in the north of England, um, and they be, the stud book dates from the 1800s. Um, the known lineages go back further than that, and they were a multi-purpose kind of horse with the idea that you could do farm work during the week and drive them to church on the weekends and also hunt them. So they were developed to be an all-around kind of horse. Uh, They share a lot of common heritage with the thoroughbreds. It's sort of my, one of my personal theories that um, when the Oriental stallions were brought to England in the 1700s or before, they were crossed on the native mares. I think some of these native, native mares were the precursors of the Cleveland Bay so there's a lot of common heritage if you trace the pedigree of any 
purebred Cleveland Bay today all the way back to then, you can see when they go to like six generations of what were then sort of early thoroughbreds and then back to the, the founding sires of the thoroughbred breed. Um, and the thoroughbreds were then predominantly crossed onto more of the Oriental horses and became a separate breed. And the Clevelands were similarly crossed with the more native Clevelands. But it, I think that explains really well why they crossed in such a great way with the thoroughbred for producing horses that can have really any level of athletic ability. I'm curious too, then what was, where did the Bay part come from? Like did they just happen to mostly be Bay or were they seeking a Bay horse for a certain reason? Well, as driving horses, I think it was always of great interest to have uniformity. And since Bay is a dominant color, I think you got the bay and then with minimum white markings so that they would really match. And they were really, uh, during Victorian times, they were the fanciest coach horses that you could have, especially in the form of the Yorkshire coach horse, which was typically a three-quarter Cleveland Bay, one-quarter thoroughbred horse. And it was the Yorkshire coach horses that were then uh, taken by King George to Germany and used in some of the warm blood populations to transition horses like the Holsteiner and the Oldenburg from the heavier carriage horses to the sport horses they are today. So if you read a lot of references, you will see that the Cleveland Bay and Yorkshire coach horses are credited with giving the Holsteiners and the modern warm bloods a lot of their jumping ability. So interesting. This is I, a lot of people, you know, you don't say you don't ride the papers, and I, I wholeheartedly disagree. I really believe you do ride the papers of a horse, and pedigree is so important. And so it's, it, I'm excited to you know put some attention on the Cleveland Bay here, and hopefully people will maybe more seek them out. So the the Cleveland Bay today, what size of a horse is it, and what do their dispositions tend to be like? The dispositions are typically rock solid. The breed standard says 16 hands to 16.2, but height should not disqualify an otherwise good sort. And one of the most interesting things, to bring it back to the topic of the podcast, is they seem to come equipped with a hunting gene. (laughs) And I think in all my association, only one of, I only know one horse that uh, I was told didn't really take to fox hunting, but the rest of them, they get out there, they say, I've got this, this is my thing. And, and they're really fantastic horses. Well, that's a a fantastic segue then to the, it's an annual Cleveland Bay hunt, right? It is. So tell us about that. It just happened last Saturday. Yes. It just happened last Saturday at Farnley in the country of the Blue Ridge hunt. And Farnley has special historic ties with the Cleveland Bay breed. Alexander McKay Smith, who started Farnley back in the 30s, was an enthusiast of Cleveland Bay horses and brought them to America specifically for the purpose of creating fox hunting horses. And he also uh, was very instrumental in uh, the MFHA 
the National Sporting Library, the Chronicle of the Horse, uh, what was then the U.S. Combined Training Association, now the U.S. Eventing Association, and probably a ton more organizations than I can even mention. And from the late 1930s, for about 10 years, Farnley was really a center for breeding Cleveland Bay horses. I happened to check this morning, and they registered more than 55 of them in the stud book for the breed in the United Kingdom. And his horses were also uh, in such demand that a stallion was purchased and re-exported back to England. And as far as I know, that's the only time an English stallion has ever been taken back. I mean, an American stallion has ever been taken back to the UK. Um, what's interesting is there aren't really any descendants of those McKay-Smith horses, those Farnley horses, in America anymore. But if you look at the pedigrees of almost all the Cleveland Bays that are in America now, they all contain the horse called Farnley Exchange, which was the horse that was exported back to England. Oh, and wow. So the Cleveland, the, it was very exciting for us in 2000. I think we started these Cleveland Bay hunts in about 2009. And in 2009 or probably, or maybe 2010, we decided to go to Farnley for the first time because it was very historic um, connection. And the Blue Ridge hunt is such a fun hunt to hunt with and excellent country. And the uh, McKay-Smith family welcomed us with open arms. And it was very exciting that day. Uh, Hetty McKay-Smith Abel's and her brother Matthew McKay-Smith were both there. I think Matthew rode with us even on that day. And so it was just uh, brought tears to their eyes to think that it was actually the first time in 50 years that Cleveland base had really been back at Thornley. And from that time forward, every two years, we have traveled back to have our meet there with the Blue Ridge Hunt. And last Saturday definitely did not disappoint and as uh, Hetty welcomed us and, and as I said goodbye to her and thanked her, I said, we look forward to seeing you in two years. And she said very cutely, she said, well, maybe you should make it next week. Come back next week. <laughs> <laughs> so they're just have, they have great hospitality that they showed us. And we had, oh, I think we had 17 Cleveland Bays there. Um, and a field of about 70 horses. So it was. Wow. 70. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a Cleveland Bay focus, but there's also, there's other riders riding non Cleveland Bay. Absolutely. It's a regular okay. meet of the Blue Ridge hunt. Absolutely. And on the off years, when you're not at Farnley, do you not do the Cleveland Bay hunt or do you do it someplace else? We try to rotate around okay. um, and do other We've done other hunts in the in the Mid Atlantic region. We've hunted with Howard County Iron Bridge. We've hunted with Newmarket Middletown Valley. We've hunted with Elkridge Harford. We've hunted with Loudon Fairfax. Um, and I'm trying to think of who else. Um, probably. Do you just kind of ask around and else. see who will have you, or do you do you try to go places where you know there's a pocket of Cleveland, Cleveland bays who are interested in hunting, or how do how do you? Well, 
I will try to network um, with owners of Cleveland Bays that might want to host us at their hunt. Um, or if there's a place we haven't gone that people think they would like to go, I'm brave enough to just call up and ask. And most hunts are extremely welcoming. So I know we have a, a very active listener, and I, I believe, well, she's in our auditor group, which is a special group of people who support the Horse Radio Network. And she, her name is Jessica. She has a Cleveland Bay mare. I don't recall, Jen, maybe you remember if she's a purebred or a partbred, but she hunted with Red Rock Hounds for the first time a couple of weeks ago and had a delightful time. Fantastic. Yeah, we- Jessica has a horse bred by Frosty Oak. And I think she does mostly endurance with her, doesn't she? She does. Yes. 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 Okay. And uh, we actually we actually have yeah. You might not even realize this, Tara, but we actually have another listener who has Cleveland Bays too. Um, well, I Michelle, guarantee you, Marsha probably knows them because she knows everybody. <laughs> Michelle Barr. <laughs> Michelle Barr in Louisiana okay. has. She she yeah. doesn't have any more. Let me think about this. I think her yeah, the mare called Emma. Yeah, Emma's her older mare. Now, is, I'm I'm trying mm-hmm. to remember. Is Emma a purebred? I'm trying to remember. I, I think Emma, Emma's a part bred, and I think at one point did Emma have a foal? Emma has two children. Excellent. <laughs> yes. Um, she had a third, but which they lost rather tragically to colic at the age of about three or four. But she's got. Oh. Two colts total now, I think, which are also obviously crossreds. But yeah, and I I had the opportunity. I was really lucky. Got to fox hunt a Cleveland Bay, mm-hmm. and uh, that that's a that's a total. And where of, did you do that? Uh, Myopia Hunt Club up in Massachusetts. Fantastic! And which horse was that? Uh, Forest Pharaoh was his name. Okay. And so that he, would have been a horse that was imported really? from the United Kingdom. It, yes, the, 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 fun, the really basic. funny backstory. Forrest Farrow came into my life when I was the um, equestrian division manager at the Myopia Hunt Club. Because we were looking for a larger school horse. We needed something that the adults could ride, particularly men, because most of our school horses were ponies. We found a free horse on the local version of Craigslist up there. We went to look at it. And he was listed as aged. And took went out there and we did the test ride. And the owner said, just be careful. He tends to he tends to buck when you canter. So I took him for a test ride and I hopped off and I was trying to play it coy. And uh, long story short, we took him home. Because when I test rode this horse, she did she didn't tell us anything about him except that he was broke to ride and she trail rode him and she sometimes bucked when he tra- he cantered. That it was very obvious the horse had a lot of really really good training. When I pushed buttons, he did stuff. He was just a big brown horse. We didn't know anything about him. And mm-hmm. his name they called him Pharaoh. And I started to do some investigating and found out that this was long lost forest Pharaoh who had fallen off the grid, fallen off the map because his papers got separated from him. And Forrest Farrow went out there and fox hunted and carried every size and shape of human being in the hunt field for the next three or four years. And that horse did everything. Anything you ask him to do, he said, sure, I'll do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> and he was awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, and well, I am hugely motivated now to go find myself a Cleveland Bay, and I'd happily support a breeder and buy a foal because. This sounds like exactly the kind of horse I want at this point in my life. I just want something that's kind of a jack of all trades, a master of none, and it'll just do all the silly things I want to go try. They have good senses of humor as well. <laughs> well, it's such a nice and size. not easily intimidated. Yeah, they're nice. They're nice size. They're great. All they're great all around horses. Yeah, I think really not great. easily intimidated is a great way to describe them. Um. When we when I first met Pharaoh and got to talking to people who had Clevelands, they always they would always mention that uh, if you're starting a Cleveland, you need to treat them fairly because they're trying their hardest and they expect you to too. And you also never want to ask a question for which you do not know the answer in advance. Smart <laughs> you. And sometimes, unfortunately, they get a mistaken reputation of being stubborn. But I think it's partially that it's difficult to intimidate them. Like you growl at a thoroughbred and it's going to fall over shaking because it's displeased you. And the Cleveland Bay is like, well, what, what, what's the matter? Yes. And yeah. They don't, really they don't do well with, with a hard hand. Unflappable. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to be smarter and more thoughtful in your training process. They can also be a little frustrating in the ring because after a few circles, they'll say, we've already been here. We keep coming here. What's the point? Let's go do something else. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of horse. <laughs> but, yeah, That's why I think they just love to hunt and they just sort of, take it all in. Um, one horse that I used to whip in on for a long time. And then I returned to the field. He would tell me, no, 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 we're not supposed to be over here. The horns over here. I'm going to take a quick left through the brush and go to the huntsman. Like, <laughs> no, 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 not today. We stay here today. And, uh, he's, uh, he's a fantastic horse. And maybe one of the photos I'll give you, uh, is of that horse carrying a hound in the river at the, one of the bull run huntsman's hunts where we were helping some hounds that didn't swim very well across the water. And he was just, he was a fantastic staff horse. He hunted for about 20 years. Wow. Oh, so cool. Wow. So I hunted him for his first time as a, in December as a three-year-old. And it was his sixth time having a human being on his back. And we just went the back of the, second field we steered a little bit we could stop and we could go and we just figured it out from there i mean i could see a horse with a good brain that riding in the field like that could be kind of good for a young horse because they just kind of follow in front of them and going forward in my experience is the best thing you can do on youngsters yeah, absolutely so if our listeners are interested and want to look up the cleveland bay hunt and join in in the future how would they do so the best place to find us is on Facebook. We have a group called the Mid-Atlantic Cleveland Bay Network. We do the annual hunting day. We also do three shows during the summer. We start with Upperville in June. We have a show totally dedicated to Cleveland Bay in Howard County, Maryland in August. 
And then we also have a division at the Warrington Horse Show on Labor Day weekend. We also periodically have other activities and uh, let people know on that uh, on that page. But they could reach out to me. Probably I'm the easiest to find that way, or on Facebook and uh, communicate with us with us there. And we're glad to involve anyone. We're active uh, in helping recruiting people to the breed helping match them up with suitable horses. Well, Marsha was a a fantastic guest, very, very knowledgeable about the Cleveland Bay breed. And we're going to get Mark Jump on. He's ready to chat with us and he's a photographer. So we're going to talk about pictures, more pictures. So today I, I like to, when we're getting close to the holiday season, talk to folks who, um, have an art or do something that might be enticing to our listeners to seek out for Christmas gifts or something. And Mark is a photographer based in the Carolinas. And Mark, did we meet in person when I was there in 2018 or did I just meet you on Facebook later? Probably. Do you remember? I mean, I was fairly new to the area and I met so many people during the world equestrian games. And I'm terrible at names and faces. I remember faces more than I do names. So, but we could have. Well, that's where we connected initially was when I was at World Equestrian Games with a friend and we, we car whipped with Tryon and we car whipped and we got the opportunity to ride out with Green Creek. And you, so tell us a little bit about your background with photography. Because as I understand it, this hasn't always been your career. No, I um, I won't go through the long litany, but I actually worked <laughs> for many years for newspapers, um, starting out in a small town newspaper in Indiana. After graduating from college in the 70s, and it was back in the day where you learned everything from taking your own pictures and developing them to writing your stories, laying out pages, um, and my career was pretty much through the newspaper industry, either working for newspapers or software companies that served the media industry. Um, so I, I think that's where I had my love of photography. And when I retired to North Carolina, I think in 2018, my goal was to shoot a lot of wildlife photography. Um, but I actually, volunteered for the world equestrian games and because i have a media background they put me with the media company that was doing all the filming and gave me all excess pass for the entire world equestrian game so i did my volunteer hours then took a camera and got to shoot pretty much every sport that was being contested there and it was eye-opening and fascinating and um a very much a learning experience. Because so, had you ridden or from, were you around horses before that ever? <laughs> there, here's the story I tell. The last time I rode a horse was when I was 16 years old and a new girlfriend asked me to go horseback riding <laughs> with her. And I got thrown into a barbed wire fence when the saddle slid sideways. And at that point oh, no. in time, I decided I'd rather play football than ride horses. So it was not a long lasting relationship, although we're still friends, but I, you know, didn't grow up around horses. 
Um, I love all animals and I just, you know, find them fascinating. Although I will tell you, if you ask me a breedable horse, I'm going to draw a blank look for the most part. I just know they look pretty. <laughs> well, that's a trial by fire then to get dropped into the world equestrian games. And then you get kind of spoiled because you see the best of the best. Right. And, and I almost felt like, I mean, I would call myself an amateur at that time. I mean, I've always loved taking pictures, but I was there with my new camera and a small lens around all these professionals with these ultra long telephoto lens that, you know, are super expensive, but they do that for a living at the time. And it was like, it was eye opening learning experience. And it was just fascinating to me. I didn't realize how many horse sports there were. And I love the show jumping. I think, um, probably, uh, the um, eventing with the carriages, the marathon part, I think was yes. my favorite thing to photograph there because these four in hand, you know, horse teams from all over the world and the horses all decked out, which kind of probably led me somewhat to the fox hunting. I was thinking about this earlier today. I remember growing up having a picture of a fox hunt in the house that was colorful and it always had fascinated me. And when I moved here, I think on Facebook, I saw Green Creek Hounds was having their opening meet. And I said, oh, that would be fun to go shoot. And I was just mesmerized. It's the first time I had ever seen a live fox hunt. And I was mesmerized by the color and the people and the horses. Um, And it was like, I still have, you know, one of the first pictures I took was um, of Huntsman David Raleigh with the Green Creek Hounds coming across a stone bridge with all these horses and everybody in, the, in their pink coats and everything. And it was like, wow, this is fun. So, And they're such a welcoming hunt. So that's a, a great, yeah, I, a great group to get started I, with. I, I think I, I mean, and the story gets even funnier. It was like, I think a week after that or so they had what they don't hold it now, but it was called the festival, of the hunt that was held at the Tryon equestrian center. And I had gone over to photograph that and DJ Jeffers, who's now a master with Green Creek, he wasn't at the time, he wrote up to me and goes, who are you? Are you an amateur or professional? It's like, I really don't know. He said, well, you need to come to a fox hunt. So (laughs) that's how I kind of got my start with fox hunting. And it just became a fascination and a passion. Um, And it just, I I think the one thing that I find most fascinating about fox hunting is every fox hunt is different. It's not something that's staged. And I I think half the pictures I get are pure luck and half of it are having done it now for three years, understanding what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and trying to capture people out there doing something that they love to do. And that's what makes it. Um, to me, so rewarding is giving people memories, um, you know, uh, of what they do as a passion in the sport. So, and you've really, I've, I've kind of followed your career, and I follow you on Facebook. So I, I love watching your photography and seeing what's happening. And it looks like in the last six, seven months, like you really started going because I, I saw you're doing opening meet photos for three or four different hunts in the area. Is that right? I'm actually doing six different opening meets starting oh, wow. a couple of weeks ago um, with Mecklenburg 
hounds, and then I just shot Low Country Hounds this last weekend. And I have Green Creek is this weekend. On Thanksgiving Day, I'm shooting Camden's opening hunt, and then two days later, shooting. It's a new hunt in Camden. I think it's Watery is the yeah. name. And then I'm shooting Todd Goodwin's opening hunt, which is until January 1st. And I find opening hunts to me are like a photographer's dream because everybody is so dressed out, tacked up. Horses are spotless. Horses are braided. And people love to have their picture taken during opening hunt. <laughs> and this is kind of a humorous note. The more the day goes on, the more they want their picture taken, if you can understand that. <laughs> That's because you're still on board and you're so proud of yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. So, But I, I think I have learned um, from shooting opening hunts what people like. But there are such beautiful venues. I mean, Low Country, to me, it's the first time I had been there, and it was shot at the Airy Plantation. And it was just, you know, hanging moss on trees and everything was like so photogenic. And it was like one of the better opening hunts I've shot. I mean, I always think each one gets a little better because I understand more. But it's it's capturing those moments to me that makes it special. So, so now that you've done it for a few years and you've kind of gotten out and about and seen different hunts, is, the, is there a certain kind or a certain shot that you you kind of have on your bucket list that you want to capture? Well, it, it's always trying to capture the prey. I think I've been doing this for three years and I have two pictures of coyotes. Um, you know, I, I know they're there, but I, they elude my camera. quite figure I got one here recently. In fact, I was standing near the huntsman and he said, uh, do you want to shoot that coyote in the road? And I didn't even <laughs> see him standing there for a second. And it's like, one of my goals, I'd actually like to get a picture of an actual fox. Um, I that's yes. you know I see pictures on Facebook of foxes and they're so beautiful and it's like why can I not find one? But I will eventually. I know Low Country has several of them and they've invited me to come back in January to shoot some stuff there. So that's you know one of my goals. Everybody wants so a are, picture of them jumping. Yes. So those are always, you know, the ones that everybody wants. And sometimes they like them and sometimes they don't. And I just say, well, the camera doesn't lie. You know, I, <laughs> your form is your form. Sometimes you can love it and sometimes you can learn from it. But exactly. So. That's very That's funny. funny. <laughs> yeah. As a writer who is still contemplating buying my show photos from the last show I went to, I, I, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. That's right. You know, it, it's everybody. Everybody loves the perfect shot, and you get those every now and then. And to me, it's still. I mean, I, I shot a lot of um, Grand Prix jumping at the Equestrian Center for a year or so, and I really learned a lot about timing and things there. But those riders and horses are different than a lot of riders and horses in a hunt field. Um, and Absolutely. It's like, try to get the right angle and try to get the right moment. And yeah. sometimes I do. And sometimes I don't. And some people love them. They're like, Oh, the, the, the one thing that always I laugh about is people say, I'm never smiling. It's like, well, I can't help that. There are some writers that every picture I have, they have a smile on their face and there are others that 
they're concentrating so much on going over a jump that they really don't see me and don't think about it. And, and they always complain about, I look so grumpy. It's like, well, I, I can't help that. So. <laughs> well, and one thing I have always noticed about your photography and something I really do appreciate is that a lot of equestrian photographers are riders and they're looking for as a photographer, what they are seeking as a rider. And I, I appreciate your perspective because it is unique. And while it's not always, you know, finger quotes, you know, the same, the form that everyone's looking for, I just, I think you really capture the ambiance of the day or the moment for each, each event that you go to. I think part of my background, um, as a news photographer, and sports photographer shooting all kinds of different sports. I look at horses and riders as athletes, and I'm not overly concerned about putting out the most picture perfect shot of form. I'm more interested in capturing a moment in time. And I think one of the, I think best compliments I got were from some of the, the top riders in the grand prix field, coming up and telling me we love your photography it's unique and different from everybody yep. else's i tend to focus more on horse faces and rider faces than perfect knees up going over um forms and stuff and i think i've had some of the top writers in the world tell me like your stuff is just like we like it because it's different and i know it's not I don't do a lot of quote show photography because those people are looking for a specific type of images either for sale or for right. um, self gratification of what they're doing on their horse. And I don't shoot those. And I, you know, I tend to tell people like I edit photos the way that I see that is most dramatic. Um, and I think that comes from years of newspaper design of looking at so many images and having to crop a photo accordingly to make it interesting that the reader's eyes are drawn to it, not necessarily an overall wide shot of a horse going over a jump, which really doesn't show any emotion. So, I mean, that's my goal in, in taking pictures is capturing a moment that may not be picture perfect to the writer, but it's picture perfect to me in my mind as I guess, I call myself an artist, you know, and, and the way that I see things is different. So, Absolutely. And I think anyone looks at your photography and they can, they see that and you feel that. So if our listeners are intrigued and now they want to go check out your work, where could they find it? Well, the best place to probably get to where everything is, is markjumpphotography.com or on Facebook is Mark Jump Photography. Um, Excellent. I, I shoot all, it's funny. I never thought I'd quote, become a, a horse photographer. You know, <laughs> I intended to live in the mountains and go photograph bears and elk and everything. But I have shot all kinds of, not just fox hunting. Um, I had a chance a couple of years ago to shoot a couple of, of carriage events. And now I shoot two or three of those a year. I'm going to be shooting the National Drive, which is in the Indianapolis area in both the spring and the fall. And and I I don't shoot just horses, um, but I tend to, to lean towards it. I love shooting steeplechases just because of the colors and the thrill and everything. Action stuff as what, well. And I think that's why I think I like shooting 
fox hunt so much is you don't know what's going to happen. You have to be prepared. You might see some stuff that, you know, isn't overwhelming, but I, I, you know, it's nature to brag. And I don't know if, I don't know if you saw it, but a couple of weeks ago when I was at the Mecklenburg hunt, one of the green Creek riders horse kind of like sunk in the mud in a pond. Well, it was and, in a side rider, wasn't it? It was, she was riding side saddle. Yeah. She was riding side saddle. Yes. Um, she's done that for years. She rides that in the opening hunts for green Creek. And I was just stunned at the overall response to that. You know, there were over a hundred thousand views, which to me, you know, I may average eight or 9,000 at the most, but when worldwide you get a hundred thousand views on a series of pictures, it's like, wow. So, I mean, every once in a while, I even surprise myself at what I do. And I, you know, I, I told Nicola teams who was the writer, it's like, I kept shooting photos because I'd swore you were going to fall into the water at some point. <laughs> and that's the shot that I really wanted because it, it's also, I mean, a lot of fox hunters, they always want the shot. You know, there's Facebook groups now that I won't say on here where people post their embarrassing shots. Oh, we everybody talk about the shit of enters group all the time. All the time. Okay. <laughs> well, everybody always wants, they want that picture. It's like, Oh, did you get that? like yeah i got it and it's like oh good i gotta have it because i need to post that I'm like okay and, and fox hunting people are, are a fun bunch to be around and on a, on a side note i thought about this earlier to me there are two different types of fox hunting groups there are the very traditional and stoic and then there are the ones that they're out on their horses to have a good time. And I, I enjoy shooting both of them and they're always fun. And the other thing that I have found is everybody that I have met in fox hunting has been so overwhelmingly welcoming to me as a photographer and to me as a person. I mean, I, I would say Green Creek, who I primarily shoot here, has become like my second family. Um, they're also... Um, Besides, you know, acquaintances, they're good friends and they're concerned people. And, you know, we do as a, as a fox hunt in Green Creek, we do a couple of charity events a year, which are, you know, one year we collected stuffed animals and the next year during the pandemic, we collected canned goods. And it's people that are, to me, are, are down to earth people. And that's the type of people I gravitate to. Absolutely. 100% agree. Well, thank you so much for coming and chatting with us. And and it's always exciting to me to talk to someone who has a different perspective from, from riders and, and has such an appreciation for the sport of fox hunting. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. Well, thank you today for listening to, as I said, my favorite episode, the fox hunting episode. You can find me, stalk me, follow all my shenanigans on Instagram at at TN Tibbets. I've got an extra B and an extra T in Tibet. You can find the links to today's guests and the show notes at horsesinthemorning.com. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook and all the social medias. Just search for Horses in the Morning. There we go. And you can have all of your favorite Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go. Yes, you can. We have an app. Works for iPhone or Android. Just go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. It's free. You can choose to have all the shows, or you can pick and choose whichever ones you like. 
And thank you very much to our sponsor, the Masters of Foxhounds Association. You can find them online at mfha.com. Good night. Good night. <laughs>